Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Monday, December 4th. Israel has been at war for 59 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President uh, for Research at FDD, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. The news out of the Middle East is getting more and more complicated. There are foreign actors. There's domestic politics. We're pummeled with misinformation and disinformation. And there are bots. Man, are there bots. It's not easy to wade through it all, but don't worry. FTD is on top of it. We're here to give you all the relevant updates you need to start your week. That's why you watch the FTD Morning Brief, right? Right. Let's get started. This morning, I'll be joined by Lahab Harkov, a terrific reporter based out of Israel. But before we get to that, let's take a quick look at what's happening this morning. War continues in Gaza. Battles were reported yesterday in both the north and the south in the towns of Shujaia and Khan Yunus. The two Gazan towns may be declared under Israel's full control today. Khan Yunus is where Israeli defense officials believe that some of Hamas's top leaders were hiding at least a few days ago. A few high-level Hamas commanders were killed in yesterday's fighting. A war is also happening in the West Bank. We just don't hear about it that much. According to one report, there have been 263 terrorists killed so far in Palestinian towns. FTD's tracker has more than 900 attacks carried out in the West Bank since 10-7. The bulk of this activity has taken place in Janine, Tulkarim, and Nablus, with other towns seeing actions as well. Nearly 2,000 militants have been arrested as well, according to my count. Hamas is still trying to make another deal for the release of some of the remaining Israeli hostages in Gaza. The terror group's Gaza-based leader, Yahya Sinwar, said that there are no more women or children to trade. It's unclear if this means Hamas cannot locate them or if they are no longer alive. Either way, Israel appears prepared to forego further talks and fight until the end. In northern Israel, uh, the battle also continues. Hezbollah injured 12 yesterday with a missile strike. Israel returned fire, destroying several Hezbollah targets. This comes after Israel took out two senior Iranian military commanders in Syria. And now, here are your top three big stories to watch today. Headline one. The head of Israel, Shin Bet, is now on record saying that Israeli intelligence is going to target Hamas operatives abroad. Here's what we know. The Israelis are known for this sort of thing. Just recall the campaign after the terrorist attack in Munich that claimed the lives of Israeli Olympic athletes in 1972. An entire movie was made about that campaign. One gets a sense that we're about to see something similar, except this time with drones, robots, and other high-tech weapons. These are exactly the sorts of weapons that have taken out Iranian nuclear scientists and other senior Iranian, uh, Iranian figures in recent years. So what's next? The Qataris and the Turks have to be more than a little nervous about this announcement. Not long ago, news reports suggested that Hamas figures based in Qatar were deemed off limits because of Qatar's facilitation of the hostage channel with the United States and Israel. But an Israeli foreign ministry official seemed to deny that a few days ago, suggesting that all accounts would be settled when the war was over. And now that the Qatari hostage channel has reached a point of diminishing returns, Ronan Barr, the head of Shin Bet, has issued a blunt statement that could prompt Qatar and Turkey to reconsider the Hamas headquarters that both countries currently provide. 
neither country wants to handle the public relations mess associated with dead Hamas operatives on their soil. I'm frankly surprised that the Israelis did not take this step long ago. Headline two, Vice President Kamala Harris has issued five demands of Israel as the fighting renewed in Gaza. Here's what we know. The Veep says that there should be one, no forcible displacement of Gaza. Two, no Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. Three, no siege or blockade of Gaza. Four, no reduction in territory. And five, no use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism. So now what? The vice president may now be the bad cop of the administration. Israel is not likely to comply with all of this. So let's take a look at each demand. First, there will be displacement. It's a war in a small space, but Israel has done a good job so far in providing guidance to those seeking to get out of the field of fight. Second, there already is a blockade, but as long as Israel continues to allow humanitarian assistance to flow, it should not be an issue. Third, there will be a reduction of Gazan territory at the end of this. Uh, reports suggest that the Israelis are going to impose a no man's land along the border with Gaza. It'll be a DMZ. And the territory used to make this DMZ will not be Israeli territory. As for the vice president's other two demands, nobody wants to reoccupy Gaza for the long term. And everyone agrees that Gaza can't be a platform for terrorism. But will all of this set the stage for clashes between Vice President Harris and Benjamin Netanyahu? Former Iran nuclear deal negotiator Phil Gordon is now a Harris advisor, and he's leading a delegation to Israel to discuss the day after scenarios in Gaza. This may not be a happy reunion with Israeli officials. Stay tuned. And finally, headline number three, the Houthis continue to disrupt shipping in the Red Sea. Here's what we know. United States Central Commander CENTCOM reported four attacks against three separate commercial vessels operating in international waters yesterday. The USS Kearney, a destroyer, responded to the ship's distress calls. The ships were attacked by anti-ship ballistic missiles and drones launched from Houthi-controlled territories in Yemen. CENTCOM noted in a statement that, quote, we have every reason to believe that these attacks, while launched by the Houthis in Yemen, are fully enabled by Iran the United States will consider all appropriate responses in full coordination with its international allies and partners, end quote. So now what? While all that sounds tough, we have yet to see a meaningful response from the United States military against the Houthis or any of the other Iran-backed militias that have attacked American bases more than 70 times. There will come a moment where the U.S. will need to answer some important questions. What is the impact of all of this on American deterrence? Isn't it long past time for the U.S. to redesignate the Houthis as a terrorist group? And how much longer are we willing to allow Iran and its proxies to target Americans and American interests in the Middle East? Nobody seems to want to answer these questions in Washington. That's because nobody wants a war. But the enemy always gets a vote. Let's not forget that. Okay. Those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome Lahav Harkov. Lahav is a reporter with Jewish Insider. She previously worked for the Jerusalem Post. Hi. Welcome, Lahav. So Hi. Uh, you've been covering Israel. You've been covering foreign politics. You've been fo you've been following the war. Talk to us, if you would, for just a minute about the mood in Israel. Right? You had a couple of days off. And now you're back on again. How are Israelis coping with the ups and downs of the battle rhythm? You know, I think that the hostage release was like a hugely 
emotional event where you had the whole country every night like watching in suspense to see would Hamas release the hostages as promised and watching the videos come out of Hamas transferring them to the Red Cross and then when they come into Israel. Um, and, and it was interesting, you know, on in Israel, right, we have the newspapers come out Friday morning and there's no newspaper on Saturday for Shabbat. And so over Shabbat, I was reading the newspapers that had come out on Friday morning, articles written on Thursday, and everyone was saying how, you know, so many analysts were saying how Israel is not going to have a fighting spirit after this. It's become such an emotional event, you know, like tugging at our, our heartstrings, you know, to over the way the hostages were treated and the families separated. And yet I, by Shabbat, I knew that the ceasefire, you know, the Hamas had broken the ceasefire Friday morning and actually... I mean, even though we have such an emotional week, Israelis are still very, very determined to defeat Hamas. Like, I don't see it as, I don't see Israelis not having the the energy or the determination um, to continue this war after the, the temporary pause. Um, and I think that's a good thing because I think, you know, the, the primary goal of the war is to defeat Hamas so that they no longer rule Gaza and no longer are able to be such a threat to Israel. Um, and as much as we want all the hostages to come home, but one can't come at the expense of the other. Yeah, and I, I do note that there's um, really no discussion here in the West about the need to clear Hamas from the uh, from Gaza because of the border communities. In other words, if if these people try to go home to a rebuilt town that was destroyed by Hamas, what is to stop Hamas from trying to pull that off again? This is this has to be uh, the war aim of Israel. They need to secure uh, the, the or they need to ensure the security of their own people. If these people are ever to trust the IDF again, if they're to return to their homes. Right. Yeah. I mean, between the Western Negev, which is the, the preferred name for people like to say Gaza border, Gaza envelope, but uh, they, they like to not be identified as Gaza. So the Western Negev um, and Israel's northern border, right, where Hezbollah has been shelling since the beginning of the war, um, there's 200,000 Israelis evacuated from their homes. Now, um, I interviewed Avigdor Lieberman last week, former defense minister, and he pointed out that Israel in its wars has always tried to take the war out of Israel, right, to the, to the enemy's side. And that this is the first time that we've seen, you know, this happened during a war that so many Israelis are evacuated from their homes. Um, and I think he's right about that. And I think that it, we can't sustain that long term. It, it could be that this war will take a very long time or there might be some sort of official end to the war, but Israel will have to have some kind of buffer zone, as you had talked about, um, to keep terrorists from entering Israel from Gaza, but the buffer zone cannot be the kibbutzes where all of these people lived. Right. Um, let me ask you about a, a piece that you wrote a couple of days ago. You and I talked about it at the time. You did a profile on the mother of the emir of Qatar, a woman by the name of Sheikha Moza. Uh, if you would, maybe just share a little bit about that profile and what you learned. Yeah, you know, I had heard of Sheikha Moza in the past from fashion magazines, frankly, before before this war happened, I had time for uh, trivialities like that. And, um, 
but it turns out that she, or not it turns out, it's been the case for a long time, that she is a hugely influential figure in Qatar. Um, she was the wife of the former emir and the mother of the current emir. Um, she runs the Qatar Foundation, which is the whole sort of soft power arm of Qatar that they use to whitewash their support of international terrorism. Um, so whether that's buying up some of the you know, most recognizable real estate in London, like Harrods and the Shard, um, whether it's donating to lots of American universities and having an influence in that way, and then also having campuses in Doha um, of different American and other Western universities. Um, and she's um, sort of the brains behind that whole move. Um, in addition, there are all kinds of reports that say that she's behind all kinds of political, like overtly directly political things happening in Qatar, whether whether it's the decision to have her husband step down and her son be emir instead, or Qatar's uh, involvement in, in Libya to uh, withdraw support from or support the rebels in Libya. That was you know a decade ago already, but um, she is an important figure. And uh, you know, I thought to write about her because she has over a million followers on Instagram and then, you know, she's on other social media as well. And almost daily, she is publishing, you know, real blood libels, basically. Every single day she talks about Israel killing children and, and making it out to be intentional and just saying terrible, terrible things about Israel. And she's going around the world, you know, taking part in international conferences and speaking with the wives of world leaders, but, you know, we know that the, those are important people too. Um, and so I thought it was important that people should know who this woman is, how influential she is and, and what she is doing in the time of war when her country is of course a sponsor of Hamas. That's an important thing to, to track. And uh, I certainly recommend that our viewers uh, take a look at uh, JI where you've published that piece. You know, speaking of blood libels, if we, if you would, let's just talk a little bit about the media coverage of this war. You are obviously a veteran reporter. You've been tracking these conflicts for a number of years. How is the media coverage going for Israel right now? I've seen a lot of ups and downs. Is it mostly up? Is it mostly down? Is it a mix? How would you assess? You know, I think it's a mix. I think it also depends what country you're in. I, I do think that in the U.S., um, television specifically has been better than it has been in the past. Um, and I think part of it is because the idea of spokesperson has given more access to U.S. television channels, which it had not done in the sort of shorter, smaller rounds of fighting um, with Hamas. Uh, and I think that there are certain key, like, standout figures who have covered this war very well, whether it's Jake Tapper on CNN or Trey Yings on Fox. Um, in print, it's been, I think, or the, it's been as bad as we expect it to be, um, you know, whether it's the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and, and sorry, the New York Times or the Washington Post, but I mean, that's a slip because I've found the Wall Street Journal to be worse than I had expected um, many times. You know, there's a difference there between the editorial page, which is very supportive of Israel and the news pages, which in this war, I don't think have been so different from the other major newspapers. Okay, uh, last question for you here. Um, I noted that you've been tweeting uh, a fair amount on the sexual violence that took place on Pen7. Uh, yeah, I published a, an in-depth story on that for Jewish Insider as well. Right, and uh, I wanted to just take a, a quick pulse from you here. How, how do you think the international community is responding now that the Israelis have 
really made this an issue. You can tell there's been sort of attacks against the uh, the UN and others that uh, purport to be proponents of, of women and that side with women when these kinds of crimes take place. That's not been what's happening lately, is it? Yeah, I think the UN, UN women was shamed into finally condemning Hamas for the mass rape of Israeli women. It took them about eight weeks until they did it. And then they did it in a very mealy mouthed way, you know, in the same tweet as condemning Israel, um, you know, for for fighting in Gaza. So the, the response has been a travesty, frankly. I think it's completely demolished any credibility that these organizations have had to speak for women around the world. It's very clear that they only care about protecting women whose politics they're okay with or whose ethnicity they're okay with. You know, it, it's just actually, it's horrifying. It's disgusting. Uh, but it's not shocking because it's typical for UN organizations. Well, disappointing to put it mildly. All right, yeah. Lahav, we're going to leave it here. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you'll come back sometime soon. Thank you. Okay, here are the other stories FED is following today. My colleague Cleo Pascal is tracking China's intense political warfare in the freely associated states, the island countries of the South Pacific Ocean. Cleo and FTE's Craig Singleton sat down recently with former president of Micronesia, David Penuelo, to discuss Beijing's tactics and what it all means for the U.S.-led world order in Oceania. I visited the island nation of Palau earlier this year with Cleo, and it was fascinating. You can watch the conversation with Penuelo on FTD's website if you missed it. My colleague Joe Trusman continues to report and tweet out, tweet out primary source videos and photos of Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, and other terror groups fighting Israel since October 7th. His social media feed is one of the best primary sources uh, on the war. If that sounds like something that you'd like to track, I recommend you give him a follow on X at Joe Trusman, J-O-E-T-R-U-Z-M-A-N. And finally, my colleague Ord Kittry, a former State Department attorney, is closely watching the international legal dimensions of the war. He's been busy monitoring the visit of Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, who has indicated that he is investigating potential crimes during the war. He visited the southern towns destroyed by Hamas, but he also paid a visit to Ramallah, where the Palestinian Authority, which has accused Israel of war crimes, also briefed him. More on that in the next installment of The Morning Brief. Read all of this terrific work on our website, fdd.org. Follow our work on X at FDD, and please make your tax-deductible do uh, donation to FDD at fdd.org invest. Join us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for more FDD Morning Briefs. Our next guest will be Trey Yingst the intrepid Fox News war reporter who has conveyed some unbelievable moments on live television in Gaza. You'll definitely want to tune in for that one. Until then, thanks for tuning in. I'm Jonathan Chanzer, signing off for FDD.